Good morning. It is a great blessing, distinct honor to be before you once again. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the well-known book of Daniel and a well-known story, Daniel chapter 6. I just want to say that this is a a great way for me to end uh, kind of the first couple of weeks of school. We've uh, had lots of students coming back to Mercer, new students coming to Mercer, and RUF got in full swing this past week, and it's been busy, but it's been a good busy. And I want to thank you for making it possible. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, this fall we are celebrating 25 years of the ministry of RUF at Mercer, uh, and that is thanks to the ministry of this church. And so I do thank you for allowing me to be a part of that. I'm very excited about the school year. We're going to read all of Daniel chapter 6 this morning, so we'll jump right in. And uh, it's just good to read stories like this because they're so familiar to us. It's good to read the whole thing and maybe catch some things we maybe have forgotten. Let's read together Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance of the king king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. For his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the musical and then later a movie, The Man of La Mancha. It was a musical adaptation of the classic novel, Don Quixote. And in the, in the musical, uh, the principal song of the musical sung by Don Quixote is The Impossible Dream. And this is how it goes. To dream the impossible dream... To fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary, to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far. Don Quixote longed to be the hero Don Quixote longed to be the shining knight that rode in and saved the day. He longed to accomplish the impossible. He longed to make the unbelievable reality. And the story is about how he drove himself mad with the thought. And I think as we come to Daniel 6, such a familiar story, I think that we are prone to fall into the temptation of Don Quixote. We are prone to drive ourselves mad with the thought, I wish I believed like Daniel. Daniel was a man especially called of God. He's presented in this book uh, to the people of God as a man of great faith, as a man of, with great security in who his God was and what his God had promised to do. He's presented as one who endured all the trials of life with great trust in God's providence and care. He is presented to us and to the people of God for our encouragement. He is there for that. 
But we've got to remember, Daniel did not set out to dream the impossible dream. When he was a young teenager, one of the greatest armies the world had ever seen stormed his hometown and laid it to ruins and carried him into captivity. And that's where he spent the vast majority of his life. He did not set out to dream the impossible dream. What did he do? He prayed, trusted, and he rested in God. So the question as we, we come, come to characters like Daniel, as we come to this today, is not, how do I believe like Daniel? The question is, do I know the God of Daniel? And I think that's what we see this morning. I want to see three things. Um, I want to see, look at the ordinance, the ordeal, and the outcome. And the first thing we see here, the first ten verses, verses one through ten, we see this ordinance. And if you're familiar with this uh, book at all, this, this story actually parallels Daniel chapter 3 very closely, where you remember Daniel, Sha- um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast in the fiery furnace. The parallels are clear. The king orders worship. The faithful people of God do not do it, and they keep praying and worshiping God, and then they're thrown into um, a scenario that involves their imminent death. And Daniel would have been advanced in years here. Uh, the first four chapters of Daniel are about the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. It would have spanned a lot of years of Daniel's life and his prospering in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we get this short little story about Belteshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And now the Persians have taken over Babylon. Uh, and pretty soon the people of God are going to be allowed to go back to Israel. So Daniel's a pretty old guy at this point. And as God has done the whole book, the whole story, his whole life, God is prospering Daniel. Daniel is blessed. Daniel is faithful. He's obedient. And God is blessing him. He's blessing everything his hands touch. He was very well respected. This is the third king in the book, and this king wants to set Daniel over everything. He was prospering, and God was doing it. And what's interesting is that he's prospered because his faithful obedience... And it's the blessing which God pours out in his life which brings his enemies against him. It's God's blessing his life which rouses his enemies to bring about what should or would have been his imminent death. Sheer jealousy moves these men uh, to do what they did. And you look at verse 6, we see this phrase that they came by agreement. And that's repeated three or four times in the chapter. That word there, agreement, is conspiracy. They were, this was nothing short of conspiracy. These were wicked, evil men setting out to do a wicked, evil thing. The author is trying to make that clear for us. And there's two contrasts here right out of the gate. And I think kind of maybe the most obvious one that sticks out there is the contrast between God's law and the law of the Medes and Persians. You find it interesting that the man who writes the law ends up being enslaved by it. And you find it interesting that the man who obeys God's law does it because he's free to do so. These men know that they can't find fault in Daniel, so they seek to entrap him in his predictability, his faithfulness to God. You see verse 5 there, we shall not find any ground for a complaint unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. I would say we're doing pretty well if we have a charge like that brought against us. The second contrast we have there is the response of Darius to the scheme and the response of Daniel to the scheme. These advisors, they come and they're praising Darius, they're... um, pouring out the praise and adulation, but it's a cover for their conspiracy. 
And the injunction, though, you think about it, we, you don't want to knock Darius too hard here. This injunction makes sense for him. This is a vast kingdom, okay? It's only going to last for 30 days. And so for 30 days, everyone in his kingdom, when they need anything, they have to think and pray to Darius first. It's a great tool to unify your kingdom and establish your reign right there at the beginning. It's going to unify the empire under him. It makes sense for him. Do you look at Daniel in verse 10? We read that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, prayed three times a day as he had done previously. So the implication is Daniel knows exactly what's going on. He's not like caught out of the blue. He knew, he knew what was going on in the political sphere there. And it doesn't affect one bit of how he lives his life. He went about his life as normal, serving God. And I think that's one of the most remarkable parts of the story. And I don't think we should pass over it too quickly. There's not even, there's not even a hint of him thinking about changing what he does every day. And we wonder, we wonder how could that be? Um, Alexander White, a Scottish preacher in the 18th century, famous quote. I, I, I came to know this quote. I didn't know it was Alexander White. But I had a friend who in their house... They, they were kind of the family that put quotes on post-it notes and slapped them on the kitchen ca- cabinet. Uh, so whenever you're in their kitchen, you're surrounded by all these quotes. And there was one post-it note that always stuck out to me, and it was always in their kitchen as long as I knew them. And it had the effect of what it said. And this is the quote. If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. I hated that post-it note because <laughs> it had the effect every time I read it. But I'm serious. If you want to... After the service, if you're talking to somebody, you want to stop that conversation cold in its tracks, you ask them how their prayer life is. Good day, i got to go to lunch. How true is that for us? Why is it that I, I would say, venture to guess the vast majority of us feel inadequate when it comes to prayer? We, most of us, I think, would say maybe we don't do it enough or when we should. For Daniel, it's such a part of his life that there's no hint of it changing in any shape or form. He's not doing it. You see, he doesn't do it in open rebellion. He doesn't go out to the street corner and say, I'm still going to pray to my God. Goes back to his room. He's also not doing it in hiding. He leaves his windows open. That He's easily found. They knew where he was going to be, and they found him. He kept on doing it the way he'd always had. And we come to that, and we look at Daniel's response, and we wonder, how could he be so calm? Why, would, did he not at least want to like powwow with some guys and be like, hey, what are we going to do with this law now? He just goes about it as normal. He's calm. Joseph Parker was a, um, was a preacher in the 1800s in England. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. And apparently uh, it goes to say that if there, it wasn't for Spurgeon, Parker would be the one we were talking about. But this quote of Parker, as he reflects on Daniel's response here in chapter 6, Joseph Parker says this, A man who has been closeted with God cannot be befooled by earthly baubles and temporal vanities. Now, we don't talk like that anymore, so I'm going to say it one more time. A man who has been closeted with God cannot be befooled by earthly baubles and temporal vanities. Why is it that we pray? There's a lot of reasons, but one I would say is that we pray that we might be lifted to where God is. And in being lifted, we would remember that it is He who lifts us. 
We need to pray. We know that. We know, we know that we Christians need prayer like people need air. And we all feel so inadequate about it, not because it's something commanded or expected of us, because it's because we know in our heart of hearts that if we don't do it, we're missing out on something. And what we're missing out on is the lifeblood of the Christian, and that is the reassuring presence of God. Do you know that in um, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that just as Jesus was lifted up by God into heaven, we also have been lifted and seated with Jesus in heavenly places. So what are we doing when we pray? We're making that truth a reality in our lives. Remembering, knowing, growing in the knowledge of the fact that my life is hid in Christ. For Daniel, that's what's so amazing about this story. It's, it's something he couldn't live without. And not even the threat of death would alter that three times a day appointment. It's as if you come to that and you say, well, it just seems like Daniel's tapping into something. There's a power there, maybe, that he's tapping into. I think we see that something in this story. We move on here and look at verses 11 through 20. We see the ordeal. We see that this is the very definition of a conspiracy. Not only do these men have to entrap Daniel, the one that they hate, but they also have to entrap Darius, whom they serve, in order to entrap Daniel. And we see, and maybe we don't remember this too much when we remember the story, but Darius favored Daniel. In verse 14, we read he's much distressed. He spends all day trying to figure out a way out of this so he doesn't have to do this. The the conspirators have to come and they have to remind him of his own law. Remember the law of Medes and Persians is that you can't go back on what you've already ordered. Darius is entrapped. He's in bondage. He's in chains to his own law. Daniel is living his life freely in liberation with God's law. What a contrast there. There's something I want you to see here, and this is something that Trimper Longman draws out. It's that this isn't so much a a simple execution. It's not that you broke this law and now you're going to die. It's what ancient uh, Near Eastern history records for us as an ordeal. Uh, These came in many shapes or forms uh, in history, and the most popular form would be by water, maybe rough water or water with dangerous creatures in it. I think of maybe Jonah as as one of these. Uh, But basically, you would throw a suspect, somebody suspected of being guilty of something, you'd throw them into this situation, water or whatever. If they survived, then they were innocent. The gods had judged them innocent. But if they, otherwise, their fate was sealed. You might think about back to the Salem witch trials. I think they did the same thing with witches, weird stories uh, back then. But you get the sense of an ordeal here. You look at verse 16. Darius, as Daniel is being thrown into the den, Darius says, may your God deliver you. And then he goes home and he spends this sleepless night wondering Daniel's fate. And then he wakes up the next morning, verse 20, and he runs to the den and he says, Daniel, has your God delivered you? Catch that. Who's on trial here? It's not just Daniel. It's God. God is in the dock, as C.S. Lewis put it. Daniel's faith in Daniel's God are on trial here. And what's interesting, it's ultimately God who is shown to be just and true, not Daniel. 
God is the one shown to be just and true. In verse 22, as he's emerging from the den, he tells Darius, Daniel tells Darius, I was delivered because God found me blameless in his sight. Meaning, I don't care what these people think of me. I don't care about your judgment against me because my God's judgment is all that matters and I've been delivered because I've been found blameless in his sight. The fact that he's done no harm to Darius is just a side note. The only judgment that mattered for Daniel was from God. So in other words, had God not stopped the mouths of lions, it didn't matter to Daniel because he knew that his God would be shown to be just and true. We live in times, as C.S. Lewis so artfully put it, that God is in the dock. God is on trial. Our faith is on trial. And he puts it like this in his essay, God in the Dock. He says this, The ancient man approached God or the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is quite a kind judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is, man is on the bench, God is in the dock. We sell ourselves a little short if we don't believe that we are susceptible to this as well. Man is on the bench. God is in the dock. We need to look no further than the the problem of evil. Something like the Connecticut shooting less than a year ago. 20-something elementary-aged school children gunned down at school. What do you do with that? You think about the Boston Marathon bombing. And the cry is quick and swift, if there is a God, how could he let something like this happen? I don't want to deal with the, the problem of evil this morning, but I want you to consider this. Where is our faith on trial? Where is our faith on trial? And better yet, ask this, with what is the church defending it? Where is our faith on trial, and where and with what is the church defending it? I'd venture a guess that if you polled non-Christians in this country, a vast majority of them would say the church is defending its faith in the polling booth or with political campaigns or political candidates. I'm not saying that's all right, but I guarantee you that's what the world would say. Have you ever thought about this? I've often thought about this. If Christianity was outlawed tomorrow, meaning you could not do things because Christianity was illegal, how would your life look any different? other than maybe that we show up at the same time once or twice a week at this place. How would our lives look any different? Our God is in the dock in the world around us. Our faith is constantly on trial. We know this. But you know, I think I could, I think I could say pretty confidently that no one has ever been converted by how you voted in the last election. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, and please, I didn't, you did not hear me say involvement in politics is bad. I love politics. But Jesus 
tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruits. And so the world will know us and our God. He goes on in John 13 to say, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's not something we can vote for. It's not something you can legislate. Um, A summer ago, I I took a few trips down to the beach with my youth group. And in South Mississippi, there was this great billboard. Um, Last summer was before last November, if you remember. Um, And there was a great uh, billboard. It was big, red, white, and blue stars on it. It looked great. And the biggest words on the billboard were comforting. It said, Jesus Christ is the only answer. You want to know what the bottom of that billboard said? Vote Romney. That billboard baffled me. I tell you, I stared at it endlessly every time I drove by it. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? There's so many things we can talk about, and it is good to talk about them. But what does the world need? What does the world need? The world will not find our God if we keep demanding that they look and live like us. The world will see our God by the way that we live. And if we live in such a way that begs the question, why? Joseph Parker again says this, Through your living, men may come into God's own sanctuary And through your noble behavior, men may begin to inquire about the cross which accounts for it. Do we live in such a way that the only explanation for why we do what we do is Jesus Christ on a cross? The world needs hope because the world is broken. The world needs hope love and mercy and healing because it's broken. So where are they going to find it? And how are we going to give it? I think the end of the story points us to it. Look at these closing verses. Verses 21 through 28, we see the outcome. And with this outcome, God was clearly demonstrating to his people here in this story that he is mighty to save. But the wow of the story is not that Daniel is spared. The wow of the story is that God works all of it, the evil and the wickedness, all of it, and works it according to his own will. That is the wow of the story. And we know that he can and is doing that now until he comes again. This is why I love the Old Testament for us. Because we know that since this story happened, the hope of Israel has come. And he secured for us a hope for eternity. And it was secured by a baby that was born to die. The parallels to Jesus in this story are eerily similar. Like Daniel, Jesus 
was betrayed and framed by jealous, religi- jealous religious leaders of his day. He's arrested. Jesus was arrested while at prayer in a private location. And like Darius, Pilate sought some way to let Jesus out of it. Jesus lived the perfectly faithful and obedient life. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He raised dead men to life. He blessed children. He welcomed sinners. He was perfectly innocent, pure, spotless, and holy. And he was put to death on completely trumped-up charges. Yet we read, He lifted not a finger, and he said not a word. It was the day of the most horrific evil the world has ever seen. So dark was that day that creation itself couldn't hold its light on Calvary. And yet, what do we celebrate that day as? Good Friday. Why would we do that? Because we know that death could not hold him. Like Daniel, the stone was rolled away, and he was not dead, he was alive. But here's the thing. Unlike Daniel, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away from the empty tomb to proclaim to the world that death could not hold the Son of God and the Son of Man. Daniel, emerging from the lion's den, showed God mighty to save. Daniel and God were vindicated. So the empty tomb proclaims to all the world for all of history that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was who he said he was. But here's the beautiful thing. The New Testament doesn't stop there. What the New Testament goes on to tell us is that when we put our faith in Jesus, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work inside of us. Ephesians 1, Paul says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in heavenly places. And he goes on in Ephesians 2 to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What is it that we have to offer the world? May I suggest it is the most unbelievable story ever told that God himself would be born a baby in order to die the death that we deserved and then be raised on the third day. And Scripture tells us that he led a host of captives with him. Who were those? Us. The story of Daniel gave Israel hope. Gave Israel hope that not only does God know the pits that we're in, but that he is willing to enter those pits himself. To suffer and to die at the hand of unjust men in order to save them. 
That is the most unbelievable story ever told. And the Bible doesn't necessarily give us definitive proof, but it gives us a story and it tells us the story is true. Less than a year ago, close to Christmas, were the Newtown, Connecticut shootings. And in the days after it, as the nation, all of us were trying to process this tragedy, uh, a man by the name of Ross Douthat, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's a writer for the New York Times. He claims to be a Christian. I don't know anything about him other than that. But this is how he processed, in light of Christmas time, the Connecticut shootings. He says this, there is a realism about the suffering of the Christmas that the Christmas story contains. That realism may be hard to see at Christmas time when the sentimental side of faith owns the cultural stage. But the Christmas story isn't just the manger and the shepherds and the baby Jesus, meek and mild. The rage of Herod is there as well, and the slaughtered innocence of Bethlehem, and the myrrh that prepares bodies for the grave. The cross looms behind the stable, the shadow of violence, agony, and death. In the leafless hills of western Connecticut, this is the only Christmas spirit that could possibly matter now. In the leafless hills of western Connecticut, or in the Coptic churches of Cairo, or in the house churches of Damascus, the streets of downtown Macon, Georgia. That is the only spirit that could possibly matter now. Don't get me wrong, it is the most unbelievable story ever told. What if it were true? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to know that story. Father, we long to live that story. Father, that we would know that you not only know and identify the pits that we're in, but that you entered it yourself, endured all the miseries of this life, that you might save rebels like us unto yourself. Father, we long to know the old, old story and we pray that you would write its truth indelibly upon our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, take your bulletins or your hymnals and let us stand and sing, I know whom I have believed. Let's stand. wondrous grace to me he has made